Well, I don't know if any of you have been foolish enough to decide that it was a good idea to go canoeing uh, after several days of rain. Uh, the problem, of course, one of several, is that while there's plenty of clearance going under branches when the river is at normal flow, when it's high, the distance between the low branches and one's head is drastically reduced. And also, you know, turns that you could sort of take gracefully when it's flowing slowly are highly accelerated and almost impossible to do. So, back in the 90s, when Richard and I set out on the Mormons River in Virginia, after a heavy two days of rain, we were in for trouble. One moment, it was a happy scene of marital partnership, and then the next, there looms a solid wall of rock, dead ahead. And the question is, how will this be negotiated? Turn! I am! Paddle harder! Which side? Not that side! Splash! Well, the thing is, if we had only observed the sign carefully, where we had put the canoe in, the one about the danger of high water, which actually had carefully like marked out, this is what high water is, um, well, we would have known what was ahead and we might have been prepared and we might have even decided to turn around, put the canoe back on the car and wait for another day. One of the great themes of early Advent is preparation. Preparation and reorientation in view of what is coming. Preparation for the coming of Jesus and the kingdom that he brings. Really understanding what his coming means for the world and for us individually. Sometimes we look on the baby Jesus and we see God coming into humanity. You know, to walk with us, to experience the joy, the dark, the challenge with us, to meet us and show us how to live. Sometimes we see Jesus as the promise of forgiveness, the Paschal Lamb, the one who died for us, that we could be reconciled. And both of those things are completely true. But John the Baptist reminds us that Jesus is a king, and he's bringing his kingdom rule. His coming is not just about walking with, it's not just about reconciling, it is about bringing heaven's rule to earth. Every second Sunday of Advent, we meet again John the Baptist, who is a hinge between the Old Testament and the New, and he is charged with preparing Israel for the arrival of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. There John stands in the wilderness by the Jordan River calling for repentance. Turn around, he's saying. Stop being arrogant. Stop being greedy. Turn toward God. That is what repentance really means. The Greek word, metanoia, turn around. Turn around from selfish things and turn toward God and his loving, generous kingdom life. John's apparel, camel's hair, and diet 
locusts, and wild honey evoke an Old Testament prophet, Elijah. Large crowds were coming out to him, including, of course, Jesus himself. John was a famous historical figure who we can read about in extra-biblical texts like Josephus. Eventually, he was arrested and beheaded by Herod Antipas because Herod didn't like it that John the Baptist denounced uh, his illegal marriage to his brother's wife. Jesus, of course, held John in very high regard. He will say, no one born of a woman is greater than John the Baptist. He adds a little bit on, more onto that phrase, which I'll talk about later, but clearly, John was a wonderful servant, a wonderful saint of God. Well, what sets John apart from all the prophets who precede him is his announcement that the kingdom of heaven is near. It's not some far-off reality. As in the prophets of Isaiah, who we just read that, that wonderful, wonderful prophecy where Isaiah talks about the stump of Jesse, which of course is that metaphor for King David's father. And uh, God had said to King David that out of your lineage, out of Jesse's lineage, is going to come a king who will redeem Israel, and that kingship will last forever. And not only will Israel be restored, actually even the Gentile nations will be swept up in the kingship of this king, who we later read is actually a servant king. All that mysterious language in Isaiah about the one who will bear our burdens. And even more exciting, uh, depending on how literally you interpret that passage, uh, there's this promise that even the wild animals will live together. I mean, I, I love that idea. I don't know if that's really what he's talking about, but I kind of hope he is. That we're going to get to see a leopard with a sheep and there isn't going to be any blood, you know. Um, I know that would mean a lot of human industry in figuring out how to feed the carnivores satisfactorily, but um, I'm hoping that one day that's what I'll see. But that vision of Isaiah's is clearly a long, long way off. John, however, proclaims the kingdom of heaven is coming. And that imminent truth determines our behavior now. And Jesus will preach the exact same thing. He's going to say, repent. The kingdom of heaven is arriving even closer. So what are the characteristics of this kingdom of heaven that John and Jesus are talking about? That is already but not fully manifest on earth. What is it like? Who are its citizens? What are relationships like there? I mean, if it is our destiny, and in some mysterious way, through the resurrection of Jesus, our present opportunity and reality, what is it exactly, the kingdom of heaven? We know that Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, you know the answer, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He also says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
And we know with that, that vision of heaven landing in earth, well, that's the kingdom of heaven on earth. And, and so we realize that one characteristic of kingdom of heaven people is humility, a kind of honest grasp of a desperate need for mercy and forgiveness and uh, an unembarrassed dependence on God, kind of a childlike dependence on God would be a characteristic of kingdom of heaven people. Basically, sort of non-puffed-upness would be a characteristic of people in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus also says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so we conclude that there are many, many in the kingdom of heaven who have borne great sorrow, but will be released from its heavy burden. We hear about those who sell their possessions and care for the poor, feed the hungry, welcome strangers, visit the prisoner, those who desire God's justice, and really encouragingly, uh, we hear that those in the kingdom are totally on board with forgiveness, radical forgiveness, 70 times 7 forgiveness. In fact, one of the things that is very clear about Kingdom of Heaven people is that they do not judge others, and they forgive others as they have been forgiven by God. Jesus also says <clears throat> that those in the kingdom don't just talk about God, they obey his will. And his will propels his kingdom people toward truth and love and peacemaking, and certainly toward loving God and glorifying him in song and speaking and doing. I've, I've recently been reading a book. It's sort of, I think it's from like the 1950s, called Saint Watching. Um, and in the chapter called Running to Paradise, I love that idea. Saints just recklessly running to paradise. The author makes this point about saints, those shining, exemplary, holy people, quirky and imperfect as they are. They are quirky and imperfect until sanctified completely in heaven. But she says that they are literal. Literal about doing the good things the Gospels teach. This I'm going to quote from Saint Watching by Phyllis McGinley. Literalness is the fork in the upward road where they, the saints, part company with ordinary people, like most of us. And it is the Gospels, the solid, explicit word which they take literally. And what does that word tell us? Nurse the sick, feed the hungry, comfort the afflicted, turn the other cheek, Love God and your neighbors. Sell all you have and give to the poor. Return good for evil. Those are soul-stirring slogans most of us absent-mindedly attend to and admire as we admire all lofty, challenging phrases. We even try to follow them in moderation. But this is what she says. The saints are not moderate. Sell all you have and give to the poor. To them is a command which means exactly what it says. 
It's really staggering. I don't know if you know of anybody who's sold everything they had and given it to the poor, but it is it's staggering, isn't it? It's an amazing thought to run toward the kingdom of heaven so recklessly, to embrace wholeheartedly Jesus' kingdom commands. I don't know about you, but if I were to categorize my approach to the kingdom of heaven, it would be a few tiny, cautious steps forward, followed by retreat, and then long, stalled-out portions. But here is the beauty of the kingdom news. Jesus is the king. And while John portrayed him as exceedingly scary with a winnowing fork in his hand, it turns out that when he arrived, he was gentle and lowly. And that is his nature through and through. John the Baptist was actually a bit baffled and puzzled and concerned about Jesus' ministry. It, we read it later in Matthew. He's worried there hasn't been quite enough of that winnowing fork. He's worried about Jesus' merciful approach. But Jesus' nature, just like that of his heavenly Father, is love. It's not a switch and bait. He's love through and through. And that is why the kingdom of heaven is marked all over with love. Now, it is true that Jesus is not afraid to use dire, fierce language of judgment. He uses it. He warned the cities that did not receive him, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! And what about you, Capernaum? You think you'll be exalted, but you'll go down to Hades. That's pretty stark. But this language is not about Jesus' delight in vengeance or even his need for vengeance. They're words that press the uncomfortable truth upon these places about the dire consequences of who they are. It's like that sign that we got to at that bridge that had all those marks and told us, if it's high water, don't go putting your canoe in here. It's telling the truth about themselves, and it is a hard truth. But the warning is for the purpose of having them turn around and believe. And most certainly, if any did, then Jesus assures us there's forgiveness. He can't wait for those cities to turn around. One, of, one person, two people, and all the oxen and everybody will be spared. In other words, Jesus' words of judgment are a means to bringing about repentance. That is their intent. They are true words, and they are loving words with the aim of saving and restoring. Well, here we are today on the second Sunday of Advent. It is our precious opportunity to reconsider the loveliness and the magnitude and the drasticness 
of the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus says is here, which we know is here. What action is it calling you to do today? What earnest re-examination of priorities? Is there something that is holding you captive? You know, that sensible voice telling you to be moderate, not to get too carried away by the lovely, compelling kingdom vision. Well, could we dare to turn toward paradise and run together with Jesus? Amen. <laughs>